You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 99. Today, we're asking the question, when is dropping your tools the right thing to do for safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, episode 99, um, almost the almost a big 100 and today we're going to look at a Carl Wyke paper from 1996. Do you want to give us a little bit of background? Sure. So I'm pretty sure, although I don't have the episode in front of me, we've talked about Carl Wyke before. He's intimately involved with the high reliability organisations research, but he's also somewhat detached from that research in that he tends to be uh, have his own unique spin on talking about safety and organisations. He's particularly strong in the sense-making area. And for anyone who's read any Wyke papers, they're, they're works of literature themselves. He's a very uh, poetic, uh, literary uh, style writer who does sense-making through his work. But in this particular uh, paper, he's talking about, uh, he, he's drawing a analogy or metaphor between an incident that happened at Man Gulch and the way in which theorists operate inside the space of administrative science. David, maybe you'd like to say a little bit about the Mangulch side of things? Yeah, so I guess this is the connection, and we'll talk a little bit about the paper and, and where it was published in a moment. But Mangulch was, a, I, I guess, it's a place. And uh, in 19, 1949-13, 13, wildland firefighters lost their life. And so that was the Mangulch disaster. And then in 1994, uh, 14 more firefighters lost their lives in very similar conditions in South Canyon. So these two two firefighting incidents, if you like, resulted in 27 fatalities, 23 men, four women, and where these teams of firefighters were overrun by fast-moving, exploding fires. And in both situations, their retreat from danger or their retreat from the flames was slowed because they failed to drop all of the heavy tools that they were carrying. And by keeping carrying their tools like chainsaws and, and all their stuff that they've got, they lost valuable distance. And I guess the argument is that uh, both of these groups of firefighters lost their lives within sight of safe areas. And it's a little bit this debate about, in hindsight, I guess it's this debate about whether they had have just left all of their equipment behind, then they they might have survived. So, Drew, this, this is not just... Uh, I guess, in the realm of firefighting. Uh, Wyke also goes on to say that when threats intensifies in some industries, like Navy seamen refuse uh, orders to remove their heavy uh, steel-toed shoes when they abandon a sinking ship, and fire fighter pilots sometimes in disabled aircraft refuse orders to eject, preferring to stay you know, inside the cockpit. So there's this kind of discussion that we want to have, Drew, in this episode about why would you, in a dangerous situation, keep hold of or stick to your guns, I guess, in your normal mode of operation? Yeah, and it, it's a really interesting space to think in because it, it's it's both a metaphor, the idea of 
sort of abandoning your tools, dropping your tools. It's also a real thing that happens. But then the explanations for the real thing are really quite often metaphorical themselves, because our attachment to our tools is not just a simple rational thing. It's bound up in a lot of other things to do with a sort of organization and belonging and what makes us feel safe, what gives us our sense of identity. So, yeah, I personally find it a really interesting uh, topic to talk in around this space around when people aren't fully rational, but also when that lack of rationality makes a lot of sense in ways that we wouldn't call irrational either. Yeah, it's a great point, Drew. So, so maybe if I introduce the paper and then we can we can dive in because we because this paper is used as a allegory or, or so between the research world and I guess the safety world. We've we've got a little bit of ground to to cover. So, Drew, you happy if I do that? Yeah, go for it. So, like we said, the author of the paper, single author Carl White. Uh, the title of this paper is "Drop Your Tools: An Allegory for Organizational Studies." It was published in the Administrative Science Quarterly in 1996. So, Drew, ASQ is a very, I guess, prestigious journal. <laughs> I haven't been able to be published in that one yet, but we did have one go at getting it in, but uh, getting one paper in there unsuccessfully. I don't know if you have been published in ASQ at all. No, just 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 the, just the one attempt. And yeah, I mean, it really, it's a big enough journal that people aspire to be published in it rather than just sort of like drop work in there because that's where it fits. Yeah, so so this is this is I guess this is almost well, it's twenty five, twenty six year old paper, and and this was a special issue. It was the fortieth anniversary edition of Administrative Science Quarterly, and I guess Drew, in that fortieth anniversary, uh, the editors were taking submissions around. Typically, those sort of milestones are points of reflections for journals about how far have we come and what does the what does the future hold. So, why I guess submitted this paper is and and made some comments about where where he felt organizational studies was at as a field and and how it can move forward and use these these stories as his way of illustrating that. Do, do you want to say anything more about the sort of two fires themselves? I think people could do it. I'm pretty sure I, I I'm pretty sure, Drew, you you did a disaster cast episode on Man Gulch because for some reason I know a little bit about that. And, I, and, that, and usually when I know a little bit about disasters, it's because you'd done a disaster cast episode on it. But this Let's go. So, so Man Gulch, August 1949, 14 uh, what they call smoke jumpers. So they basically helicopter in uh, or plane in, sorry, in, in behind the fire line and they get dropped into the bush and they start to try to clear brakes and, and backburn and, and try, to, try to, I guess, slow down and mitigate these, these very big wildfires um, in the forests of Western Montana. And so basically these, these men, the fire turned, went fast moving up a steep slope and the majority of the firefighters involved weren't able to escape. I think, Drew, from memory, uh, a couple of, two of the firefighters had made their way through a very small gap in a, in a cliff face and one of the other firefighters managed to lie down in a, in a burnt area that they'd kind of burnt um, while the fire went straight over the top, but all of the others passed away. And I guess there was an order that was given in that moment to tell everyone to throw away your packs, throw away your heavy tools. And in recounting the story, one of the survivors said, after this order had been given, was very surprised that people, some of them wouldn't abandon any of their any of their tools. And the I guess the those firsthand accounts say even some of the most experienced and, and intelligent of the crew um, continued carrying all of their all of their tools. 
So, Drew, anything you want to say about Man Gulch? A couple of things. The first one is the is Wyke himself has written about this fire previously, talking about sense making around the idea of when you stop thinking that the fire is under control and start realizing that you yourself are actually in danger. And he talked about the breakdown of organization as a way of trying to understand why the four men lit an escape fire, jumped into it and survived, but no one else followed him. Everyone else ran up the slope. And then the other thing I thought was interesting was one of, the, one of the guys who escaped was saying that he was like trying to get rid of a saw that he was carrying, or but he was looking for somewhere appropriate to put it down. <laughs> so it's, it's like, you know, even though the entire area is about to be engulfed in fire, he still doesn't want to just drop it. He wants to put it down properly. And his inability to like find the right place to put it is causing him distress. Yeah, and this is I, I guess this is where people are so well drilled, like look after your tools, don't just lie them on the ground. Even in an emergency situation, they are so well drilled that they'll there's something that you never do. You know, you never just put your put your your tools just, you know, anywhere on the ground. So I think that was fascinating. And Drew, maybe we don't talk too much about South Canyon, but it was I guess forty five years later in nineteen ninety four, roughly the same thing happened uh, with another group of firefighters who ended up unable to outrun a fast-moving fire that I guess didn't behave in the way that they wanted it to. And the firefighters who, who who were, I guess, killed in that were ones that didn't drop their tools or packs when they were trying to escape. So, so, so let's talk through, uh, Wyke sort of lays out 10 different explanations for why people might exhibit this behaviour. And they, they, they sort of range from the uh, very prosaic to the really sort of almost deeply philosophical. So like the very first one he says is, okay, one reason why people might drop the tools is they couldn't hear the order. Yeah, so this, I think I think this is really, I guess this is where you said at the start of this episode, things become very complex. So let's run, we'll run through these two, these 10, sorry. So you're right, the first one is just listening. Someone's giving an order, but but people don't, people don't hear it. And so it's just a basic miscommunication and the absence of an individual decision. Yep. The second one is a little bit related, which is that, you know, maybe just the lack of an explanation for the order. You're dropping your tools is a fairly counterintuitive thing to do. You why, why should you follow a weird instruction about like throwing away your tool when you're so used to following instructions, look after your tools, carry your tools, don't lose your tools. Unless you're given some sort of clear reason, you know, why would you do this counterintuitive thing? Yeah. So I guess it's that idea you may not perceive the situation the same as someone else who's telling you to do something and it is very counterintuitive uh, for these firefighters to, you know, all their food, all their water, all their safety equipment, all their emergency equipment, and and leaving all of that behind is something that, you know, unless people know exactly why they're doing that and that it is a matter of life and death, then, you know, they may be very reluctant to do that, even when, when given an order by a superior. I'm not really convinced that the third one is particularly different from that. You maybe like wanted a nice round 10. But he then goes on to talk about maybe it's just about trust. Particularly in the main Gulch fire, the crew hadn't worked with their foreman. So they didn't really know whether he was an expert or not. Um, whereas they were used to sort of trusting each other. So you don't trust the person who's giving you the order. You do trust the other people who aren't dropping their tools. Then maybe you... um. Yeah, you don't see the order as legitimate or authoritative or worth listening to. Yeah, it's a good point, Drew. So the idea is, one is what's the legitimacy of the instruction itself and the justification for that, and then who's actually giving the the order, providing the direction. The fourth there is 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 labelled control, 
And I guess this is where um, the firefighters may feel as if they they lose a lot of control when they when they don't have any of those tools or any of that equipment with them. So they they just more uncertainty. Anything else you want to say about that, Drew? Yeah, just the idea that even like having a tool gives you a capability. And, and so Wake talks about this a lot in his other paper, the idea that when you've got the tools in your hand, you're a firefighter. When you don't have the tool, now you're no longer a firefighter. You're just someone who is running away from the fire. You know, tools give you capabilities. Getting rid of tools is abandoning capability. It's abandoning an ability. And so, Drew, number five is this is labelled skill at dropping. So this is what we mentioned a little bit earlier um, with the first one is actually knowing how knowing how to drop the tools. So one of the people who survived, uh, the man Gulch fire, mentioned that he, even though he was running for his life, when he grabbed the shovel off someone, he he looked around and leant it up against a tree rather than just throwing the shovel on the ground. And even in uh, in his reflections on on the incident, he said, you know, that seems very crazy now, but at the moment it seemed like a very logical thing for me to have to do, have to find a tree to lean this shovel up against. Yeah, and he says he remembered thinking that I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm putting down my saw. What a, what a weird thing to do. But yeah, he did it and was one of the two people who narrowly escaped. That They were only a sort of few metres ahead of the fire when they found a crack to get through and made their way out. Uh, the sixth is skill with what what the sixth reason um, for not dropping tools in, in these situations, like labelled as possibly this idea of skill with the replacement activity. So if I don't have my tools, I'm in a very unfamiliar situation. And so if I don't have my fire shelter to deploy and I have to make do, I, I may not have the the skill at doing something in the absence of my equipment. So so maybe in this, what I was thinking about in this one, Drew, is they train people in how to use all the equipment they've got, but they may not train people in how to get the same outcome when they don't have any of their equipment. And so people just, I guess, might not know what to do. Yeah. He particularly mentions in, in the South Canyon fire, the idea of firefighters not wanting to deploy fire shelters. So, you know, they're carrying two sets of equipment. Part of their equipment is to fight the fire. The other is to help them survive the fire. And they actually get far more practice at the firefighting than the deploying a fire shelter and just lying down in it. So it's switching from something that's familiar to something that's unfamiliar. And so now more, a little bit more, I guess, identity related or internalized the, the seventh reason why it's labeled as failure so to drop one's tools may be to admit failure was was the quote in there so if i'm throwing my tools away that means that you know we failed at our job and i failed at basically you know not getting myself into the situation that i now find myself in yeah and and i i think along with that there's there's always a fear not that you've already failed but that you haven't already failed so, so you know, you always feared that maybe if we kept fighting, maybe if we kept going, we might succeed. And it's really hard to recognise that you know you're well past that point where success is not an option at all. Maybe you fear you're just on the other side of that line. Yeah, and interestingly, I guess in what I didn't realise until I read this paper, in both of those situations, the fire season previous had been a very light kind of fire season. So these firefighters were were a couple of years since they'd been in a really kind of raging kind of high risk fire situation so you know if you've had that much success for a couple of years maybe he also said that maybe they weren't as experienced at, at sizing up the the imminent danger that they found themselves in yeah the, the, all their recent experience was you fight hard and you win they hadn't had experiences before where they'd had to give up retreat try again a different time and the eighth one is labeled as social dynamics so this is this idea of if if other people are holding their tools, 
then I should probably keep why would I do something that steps outside the rest of the group the group norm? So this becomes really, really difficult. And I think there's some other research here around stopping work when something's unsafe, Drew, where it's very hard if other people seem to be just progressing as normal. It's very hard to be the one that steps out of the line of the social dynamic. Wake particularly talks about the idea that people in a line can like exaggerate that because someone else has had like the opportunity to be first and has passed up on that opportunity and you're next. And so you might imagine, say, for example, people crossing a stream, you know, the first person crosses, second person crosses, third person crosses, fourth person doesn't want to be the one who says, hold on, I think this is too deep. Maybe I shouldn't get it go across. Even if the water has been getting deeper and deeper each time, but you know, the precedent's been set by other people. Yeah. I was going to mention at the end, but maybe now Drew is, is appropriate. I know there's some research in airline uh, studies and pilots where the first pilot to make the diversion decision because the weather's too bad and I'm and, and we're not going to land at this airport, we're going to divert to a different different airport. If the plane in front, 15 minutes in front has landed, the plane in front has landed, it's very hard for that first pilot to make that call that says, well, actually, no, it's not safe now, but it was safe 15 minutes ago. And then when they do the research on it, as soon as one person makes the call, then all of the other people behind, you know, also find it much easier to make that decision as well. But it can be very hard to be that first person to step out of, I guess, the momentum of what's going on. Yeah, that, no, that one's really interesting. So the ninth one is consequences, I guess. And and in this, he said that people may not drop their tools if they believe doing so won't make much of a difference. So I guess this idea that you know, if I, I'm always running around and walking around in the bush with my with my tools and my backpack. You know, getting rid of them, I may not actually be that much faster. But the the maths here is interesting. I think they when they did some trials, it looks like after South Canyon, they said without their their equipment, they might have been able to move about eight inches or 25 centimeters more per per second. I guess lot lighter, longer strides. And in the time that they had, they probably would have been able to get another 230 odd feet, which would have put them over the top of the mountain or, or close to the top uh, at South Canyon. So just that, literally that 100 metres extra may have been the difference. Yeah. Funnily enough, when you're running away from a fire, you don't have time to stop and do maths. I'm just, just now picturing some guy saying, you know, drop your tools. The other one says it won't make much difference. And they stay there arguing for five minutes about whether it will or will not make a difference. And again, I think this is interesting, like in terms of planning for the unexpected in in organisations, like what would have been interesting is you know, to take these firefighters and have them run up a hill with all their gear on and time them and then take them back the next day without their gear and have them run up the hill and be able to kind of show them and, and help help everyone understand how different options can can create different outcomes because I'm sure that maybe, again, these groups just may not know that there is a speed difference. Yeah, and particularly if it's a small difference and you don't know in the end that it's only going to be a few uh, you know, hundred yards that make a difference. I'd probably want that 100 yards though, Drew, if it was me running away from a fire. <laughs> so. uh, absolutely. And the 10th one, I guess the last one here is identity. And I guess it's this idea that you mentioned a little bit earlier that basically the tools and the equipment that firefighters have are central to their identity as a firefighter. That you know, Having these tools is part of the membership of the group. And it's the reason that these firefighters are deployed in the first place. They're deployed with their tools to to manage fire situations. So once they drop those tools, then they're almost throwing away their identity as a as a firefighter. The moment I read this, I was thinking in particular of the fact that the Man Gulch firefighters 
This is only very shortly after World War II. All of these guys have trained, even if not all of them have deployed as soldiers during the war. And you, as a soldier, they would have been, you know, it's, it's, it's the act of a coward to throw away your weapons and run away. And so there may have been like much of this sort of like same feeling that, you know, once you abandon the thing that you fight the fire with, that that's, uh, you're alienating yourself from the group as someone who's not living up to the standards and the identity. Yeah, so Drew, we've got, so there's 10, 10 reasons, I guess, Mike, I'm not quite sure how he, he decided uh, that those were the 10 or, and I guess this might just be him sort of offering up some some of his own thoughts and explanations around around this, but I think we can see that there's potentially a whole bunch of complex information processing, decision-making processes that, that go on inside individuals in these kind of really time-critical, high-risk situations. Anything else you want to say about that, Drew, before we, we move on? Uh, no, no, let's move on to talk about a little bit of the point that Wyke is trying to make through this discussion. Okay, so like we said, he, he used this example and he wanted to talk about the current state of organisational studies and, and the 40 years of administrative science quarterly. And it appears as though, and I don't know all the background, but going on Wyke's paper, that the first uh, editor of, or I don't know what you call, what do you call the head editor of a journal, Drew? I believe at the time it was just editor, but today we'd call them like editor-in-chief. Okay, so the editor-in-chief sort of said, you know, there's four principles that 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 I want, Thompson was the name, there's four principles that I want Administrative Science Quarterly to be, you know, to be serving, if you like, uh, these principles. Should we, should we go through each of these four? And then, so the first was talking about administrative science should focus on relationships. Drew, do you want to talk a little bit about that? So I, I think this is like partly in as a way of distinguishing administrative science from other ways of looking at organisations like economics. You know, one of the key sort of ideas of administrative science is that you can't understand an organisation just by looking at, you know, what's the financial bottom line and how do they achieve that? You need to understand how uh, structures and people and how those things interact and then also the relationships between different variables, between different things that are going on. Yeah, so I think exactly right. So in, in terms of this idea of focusing on relationships, not just on one individual or or the bottom line or something like that, but going actually organisations are these sort of pluralist, interdependent sort of social structures that, you know, to understand how they function, we we can rarely just look at one particular aspect of it. We're better off looking at the relationship between between multiple aspects. So what does it mean? What What is the relationship between, for example, uh, the financial bottom line of the business and the risk-taking decision-making of, of managers within that organization? So that's an example of trying to think about what are the relationships between multiple aspects of, a, of an organization. And then the second sort of value is the idea of abstract concepts. And what he means by that is, uh, sort of as opposed to focusing too much on just very single concrete events or single concrete ideas. Um, so this is the importance of building theories that can apply across multiple situations and contribute to the field rather than trying to solve the problems of one organization. Yeah, so it'd be this idea that you know we, we might do this particular study where we see people doing a lot of safety work activity in their organization. And so I guess what the hope was here is that, you know, in organizational studies field, people would would observe that particular aspect of organizations or create an experiment around a particular aspect of an organization and use the findings or the observations from that 
to actually start to, like you say, build some theory around how the organizations function more broadly so that I guess in, in this instance, be able to predict how general organizations might function in relation to these aspects. The third uh, sort of principle or value is one that I I really love, which is the development of operational definitions that bridge concepts and raw experience. It's really interesting to read that one in this paper because what Thompson is criticizing is the idea of just like very vague literary ideas. And that is actually what Wake is all about. So you see Wake sort of trying to reimagine this principle a little bit to fit his own idea of how it should work. But yeah, this this is the whole idea of having the science in administrative science, the idea of instead of just like vague, fluffy things filled with confirmation bias, setting out clearly what you mean, defining what you mean in ways that you can then test it, expand it, apply it. Yeah, so I guess this Thompson originally, so when would that have been the mid-50s? I'm not sure he'd be too happy with 30 years of safety culture research, which is still yet to be. <laughs> it's funny, it was safety culture immediately that I thought of there. Yeah, we, we talk about developing operational definitions and, you know, we don't really have a definition of, of some of the you know important language that we use in safety. In, in safety, we love to have working definitions rather than operational definitions. And the fourth one, I guess, is um, the principle that I guess... This value is discussed, you know, you know, what's the value of the problem that we're understanding and solving? So, Drew, do you want to say any more about, about that? The criterion problem. So, I, I struggle a little bit with the, what exactly either Thompson or Wake mean with the language here. But in the elaboration, they talk particularly about what is the actual service that researchers are trying to provide. And he talks about the need to get away from trying to be too immediately useful in the short term. So we should be finding uh, sort of general principles that apply over multiple situations. So understanding relationships between things that can be generalized rather than trying to like just be very immediately have people pick up our research and use it. Yeah, and I think it's also about how in this about how we focus on understanding one particular aspect of the organization and in reality, Wyke's also talking about that very rarely organizations are aligned and focusing on just one thing. So perhaps we, we yeah, we, we need to understand when are we looking at one thing and when are we looking at a broad set of aspects of our organization. True, do we want to talk a little bit about how Wyke relates these, um, these incidents to those four principles? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so this is sort of almost like a transition point in the paper that he takes these research principles, applies them back to his 10 reasons for the dropping of the tools. And then he makes a shift forward again to look at what this means for researchers themselves. Um, But I think sort of the most concrete and useful thing we can do is this discussion about dropping the tools in the literal sense. So, you know, the first thing he says is that the fact that he's come up with a list of 10 things, that's where that first principle comes in of understanding relationships is that we shouldn't be just throwing out 10 reasons and saying, okay, which one of these 10 reasons is correct? He says people, uh, I'll quote the language directly, is people have multiple interdependent, socially coherent reasons for doing what they do. So all 10 of these reasons could be true at once. They don't contradict each other. We don't have to pick one. Yeah, so it could be, I didn't hear the instruction. I'm looking at what other people are doing. I've got my identity as a firefighter that I'm worried about. I don't know what to do if I don't have the tool. And so this idea that you know, it's not usually, you know, a model of behavior isn't just A, B, C, 
you know, like antecedent behavior consequence or one of these really simple linear models of of decision making and behavior. So that was focus on relationships. Uh and I guess multiple multiple truths. And the second, Drew, do you want to go on to the second? Uh, so the second one is applying that principle of using abstract concepts. And he says, like, so if there are multiple ways people relate to tools and use to tools, then to understand this, to use it to compare Mangulch to South Canyon, and then to go forward to other things in firefighting, then to go forward again to other settings that aren't firefighting, we need to find more abstract concepts. So you can't be as literal as should you or shouldn't you drop your tools based on whether you know that you can run 10 metres faster or not. Um, but if we go up to higher level concepts, then things like justification, trust and identity, those are both more abstract, but also more widely applicable. And then we can look, you know, there are other ways of looking at identity other than what your tools are. But in this particular example, you know, identity and tools are closely related. There are other ways of looking at trust as to than to whether you obey this one particular order. But, you know, trust is really important for how people decide to do what they do in organizations. Yeah. So then that these abstract concepts in the third principle is we can then use these abstract concepts and tie them to concrete action. So White goes on to sort of say, well, so justification. So how long and deep has the briefing been with the firefighters regarding what the suppression strategy actually should be? And the trust is, you know, to what extent is there a willingness amongst the crews to follow unusual orders given by potentially strangers that they're working with? And then this Id identity. So this preoccupation with this reputation as a can-do firefighter. I mean, these people who jump out of planes and in behind fires, you know, parachutes and chainsaws, they're people who identify as getting stuff done. So, you know, this idea of concrete action can follow these abstract concepts and and firefighting organizations can think about well do we need to do do anything with our formal and informal structures to change any of these things so i think he might be making an even sort of bigger point there about the relationship between theory and concrete action and he's sort of warning that you know some people like to study things at the level of concrete action um so you know how long should briefings be and other people like to just theorize and talk about vague concepts like identity and he's sort of saying that the correct path is you start by zooming out and finding these abstract concepts, but then you turn them into very measurable predictions that, you know, we can actually, you know, once we've got an idea like the idea of justification, we can then test things that arise from that. Okay, so if we spend more justif time justifying, does that improve people's following of orders? Um, if we spend more time building and reframing identity, does that change people's following of these sorts of orders? So that both uses the theory to come up with actions, but also uses the concrete actions to test the theory. Yeah, and he's and he and he sort of talked about Wyke and relating it back to Thompson's original principles. Sort of said it, it it should always be both. You know, just pursuing these abstractions and theories, or just pursuing the the particulars by themselves, is not going to give you a picture of an organisation or a useful working model of organisations. You need to be looking at the relationships and the bridges between these abstractions and the concrete action. So the fourth, I guess, is this criterion problem. So so this is what are we focused on? Uh, what criteria or, or what are we focused on? And I guess in, in this relation, in the tool dropping situation sort of says that even though the obvious criterion of survival, which is in that situation, everyone in the, in the team should, and I use the word should in inverted commas, be focused on survival as the number one point of attention, that's not actually the case. 
you know, it doesn't mean that everyone is is focused on that at the same time as their only priority. There's all sorts of other priorities and things taking attention, like fire line construction, efficiency, the speed of you know what they're doing, and and obstacles and risks. They all compete for the attention. So because the whole crew is not engaged on that number one or that 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 single criteria of survival at the same time, can mean it's very hard to get these you know universal orders like dropping tools and um, and that to to happen quickly and to happen across the whole team. And I think that that's a really important lesson for safety that we need to keep learning over and over again, is that in safety, we often sort of like default to that really obvious criterion of what keeps people physically safe. And we often want people to just ignore all of these other things that we know are salient and important to them. So Drew, we've got these 10 reasons from WIKE as to why people may not drop their tools when when faced with imminent danger. Wikes then connected them back to these four original principles for the uh, ASQ journal, and then goes on to talk about, I guess, what it means for researchers in organisational studies. So this is this is moving. I guess, do you want to lead this this part of the conversation? Sure, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. To be, to be honest, I, th- I think the this is one of those areas where the allegory is really interesting, but the moment you start to like fully apply it rather than keeping it as a vague metaphor, it becomes a little bit stretched. So the first question Wyke asks is, okay, what is the research equivalent of the fire that threatened to overtake the fire jumpers? So he says, like, what is the actual crisis that is facing people doing research into organizations? And he sort of puts up two threats, um, both of which I find sort of interesting is one of the threat is by companies themselves. And the other threat is from economists. Um, Wyke is like really, really worried about administrative science or and I think you know, today we'd probably almost call it like sociology of organizations, where it being wiped out either by people within organizations or by people in economics departments. And why, why might this be the case? He says that knowledge creation inside companies tends to be very company specific and problem specific, meaning that each company sort of has to reinvent the wheel for itself. And there's not a lot of abstra- abstract knowledge which is being created and preserved when companies do organizational improvement. And he says, this is why lots of uh, quality interventions fail, because organizations just aren't willing to put in the expense and difficulty of doing proper evaluation. And even if they do that, it becomes very vulnerable to political manipulation because everyone within a company, your main objective is not actually to generate abstract, pure knowledge or trying to gain personal advantage and company advantage, you're not going to have the sort of purity that research has. So as a result, people tend to take shortcuts in assessing things. Learning tends to be somewhat based on superstition. And I love this phrase, what appears to be knowledge creation in fact becomes the enlargement of ignorance. So no offense to people working within companies, but that really is how researchers see companies trying to do improvement often, is we, we see what we see as shortcuts like not really willing to evaluate. Uh, but then he says like, so what that should be is if that's the case, if companies aren't very good at this, then it should be like boom time for universities. The, you know, people doing organizational studies then should have a very clear role, a very clear differentiator, a very clear value add. But he says that's not the case because researchers tend to uh, get caught up in doing things the way companies are doing them and trying to tell companies what they feel they already know instead of doing the research side of things. I mean, he says, you know, if that happens, if researchers want to behave too business-like, too much like businesses do their improvement, then 
you've got two groups doing the same thing, you can probably get rid of one of them. <laughs> so that's what he sees as the, the fire, is this risk of administrative science and organizational studies and sociology of organizations making themselves irrelevant by being too much like consultants and just being not as good at being consultants as businesses are themselves. So Drew, this was, I guess, 25, 26 years ago, this this paper. So what do you see in the universities today? What do you see? Do you see universities maybe in the in uh, in our disciplines that are closely connected with industry? Do you see that the research is true to the role of, of research or do you see it being more organisation-like? Let me give two responses. The first one is, I think his prediction has largely come true in that lots of these research groups have been wiped out. But weirdly, I think the ones that have survived are the ones that are closest to being consultancies rather than the ones that are doing the sort of abstract research. So I don't know how true or not true his like explanation is, but his prediction certainly was very true. Okay, so we're okay. So we've got we've got these um, this trend in relation to organisational studies research itself. What else do you want to? Where do you want to go to now? So, so I guess the the other. So if that's the fire, what's the heavy tools that he thinks that we should get rid of? And he puts up lots of candidates because he says basically that researchers all agree that we should get rid of the heavy tools. They just don't agree what counts as the heavy tools. But I think if I'm reading correctly, what Wyke settles on is he sees the, he continues this link between tools and identity. And he says that the heaviest tools are the ones where we mix up our identity with our uh, theoretical positions. And he particularly says that we get all of these dualities. So this is where there's two things, uh, like he gives the example of the macro and the micro view. Um, you know, in safety, the obvious duality to call out here is safety one and safety two. And he says, we've got these existing dualities, but when they harden into positions which people identify with, and that's where they get their identity then from, then the tools within those positions take on a lot of extra weight, which makes it harder to drop them because they're both heavier and they're identity bound. He says a couple of other things. He says that attention is deflected from ideas to people. Uh, attention is drawn towards the field's internal issues instead of the external threats. And I'm think I'm just seeing more and more parallel here to the fight between safety one and safety two, David. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I think this is that's exactly what he's talking about is your identity gets wrapped up in one side of the duality and in having the fight within the duality instead of thinking about what's the actual threat coming from the outside. Yeah, I think I, I mean I was thinking as you were as you were saying that, Drew, um I think you'd, it has gone from ideas to people. So you know, you've got resilience engineering and Dave Woods. You've got safety differently and Sydney Decker and safety two and Eric Holnagel and and Hop and someone like Todd Conklin and and these we've actually taken these ideas and and we now talk about people. And so now it's like, well, I don't like this. If you say I don't like this idea, you can almost be saying, well, you don't like this person. Or if you do like that person, then maybe you don't want to say I don't like this idea. And it becomes very unscience-like from from then forward. And I think say I think that's one of the big problems in safety in, in connecting safety back to safety science is we've got exactly what Wyke said in this paper, 25 years down the track in safety. We've got this tight coupling of ideas and people and and internal issues in the in the discipline. Yep. So I don't know how far the metaphor can be stretched, but you know, what what would dropping the tools look like? Wyke says it involves sort of going back to those principles that Thompson was encouraging. 
Um, so, you know, focusing on the study of relationships, using the abstract concepts, having that constant bridge between the abstract concept and the concrete predictions and concrete examples, rather than treating the two independently. Um, and then thinking about, you know, what are your values that matter? And what's, what's always the link between these other things we're doing and the creation of those ultimate values? And he says that you're know, focusing on those things. That's what will restore lightness. So, Drew, do you want to talk about anything else or do we want to try and do some practical takeaways? David, there was just one other thought I had while I was going through this, which you know, not everyone who listens to the podcast is a researcher. And some of this paper is speaking directly to people with tools. Some of this paper is speaking directly to people who do research. I thought there was something in the middle that I thought neatly fit this example of dropping tools. And that is the idea of risk assessments. And going through sort of like all 10 of White's explanations for why people don't drop their tools could also be seen as explanations for why people are reluctant to give up things like quantitative risk assessment. This is something that is genuinely heavy. This is something that slows people down, takes up time and attention, and people would be lighter and could move more easily if they got rid of it. But we don't necessarily trust the people who are telling us to get rid of it. They give us an illusion of control. We feel that you know, having this tool gives us power. Uh, we might just not have the skill to drop it or more likely the skill with the replacement activity. You, the first question someone asks when you say get rid of your risk assessment is, but what am I going to do instead? And then we have this idea of you know, failure, that dropping something that you've been using for a long time is admitting that it hasn't worked, that it's failed, that you're not doing your job well. And then all of the social dynamics, you know, how can I get rid of it if other people are still using it, if the customer's still demanding it, if the client's still demanding it? Yeah, Drew, I think if anyone does pick up this this paper and, and, and gives it a read, and I encourage you to read any of like stuff because it's 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 well it's all always well written i think you could think about any of your safety work activity in your business whether it's audits or risk assessments or investigations or or those and and read those 10 reasons why even if it's not being helpful for you in your organization why it might be very hard to get rid of we probably could have used these 10 when we did the safety clutter work drew and and done a nice tie in there as well about why decluttering is so hard yeah no it'd be interesting to sort of compare that structure to what we said and see where the gaps are. So do we have some do we have any takeaways? Well, I was I was sort of focused on the on the um the 10 reasons for not dropping your tools and I guess the first thing I thought of was the work the hot and cold cognition work uh Drew there's some work in the 1960s um started with Abelson there's this idea that there's but there's information processing processing and decision-making processes, there's emotional processes and there's cognitive processes. So I guess where I think Wyke's list of 10 things were quite good is just to show that even when we think of you know something like, well, if the fire's coming for you, drop your tools to run away, there's very complex emotional and cognitive processes. So on the cognitive side, you've got, you know, did I hear the person? Do I know how to drop the tools? Do I know what to do instead? These kind of logical, cognitive information processing. And then you've got the emotional you know, the identity, the failure, the trust and the justification. And I think it's just knowing that in in operational decisions, there's like a complex series of both emotional and cognitive information proce processing processes going on in individuals and teams. I, I think we could definitely apply these 10 things, particularly to decisions about change and when we're asking someone else to change. You know, there's been a lot of work and people, I think, today are more ready to think about things like readiness for change. But I think we still think that we can overcome that readiness just by persuading people that the change is a good thing. And I think these 
10 reasons could give us a lot of genuine empathy for why people might be reluctant to give up what they're currently doing in order to change. These are real needs that need to be met. And until we meet those needs, then people are not going to be able to drop their tools and move on to the next thing. I agree, Drew. I think sometimes we think of change, even though we know it's a very emotional process. A lot of our change management approaches in organization are very cognitive and transactional. Here's the justification. Here's the, but you know, there's this idea of, well, do I trust the person who's asking me to change? And what does this mean for my role? If, you know, if, if, if I, if I have to do a process different that is the very, very core to my, to my role and experience. I like that one, Drew. Thank you. The second one I had here, Drew, was around understanding social and group dynamics. And so in this situation, the first person to react and respond and do something very out of the ordinary needs to break with a norm or a convention. I guess I'm, I'm thinking, Drew, I, I guess there's that plane diversion example that I gave earlier, but also I'm, I thought about Piper Alpha as well. So, you know, the, the very first person who decided that, well, I'm not going to evacuate to the accommodation module because, you know, I'll, I'll burn to death inside that module. So I'm going to break the emergency procedure. I'm going to break the rule and I'm going to jump off the platform into the North Sea. And then I could just imagine the first person to just abandon the platform and then, you know, a whole lot of other people followed uh, and also jumped into the water. And I guess it's that idea, knowing that the first person to break with that norm, that's a really big step for for that first person to to take. You know, the first firefighter to just throw away their tools and start running in a panic. It's like telling someone just to stop the work when it's unsafe, when a whole group is thinking that the work's safe and this one person wants to call it. It's a really hard thing to do in a group. Yeah. Incidentally, I, I can never think of the Piper Alpha example without thinking of that, you know, saying, you know, if, if all your friends were jumping off a cliff, would you jump off too? And like, you know, immediate thought was, well, if there's a reason that's good enough that's got all of my friends jumping off a boiling oil rig, then maybe that's reason enough for me to jump as well. But for that first friend to jump, they haven't got anyone else to follow to set the example. Yeah. And I think there's a, that's a good analogy. I think that, that the first person to jump takes a big step and then it's also another big step for other people to follow. You know, even in, in this case, if someone's ordering you to drop your tools or ordering you to do something, even to to follow someone who's doing something quite out of the ordinary also takes another big step as well. So I guess the takeaway there is just understanding and, and reading widely the research on social and group dynamics um, and thinking about what it means for how you're approaching safety in your organization. So th- those are only a couple of takeaways, David's, but they're pretty big ones. Is there anything else you wanted to put or shall we? No, I think, I think, I, th- I think it's just, I guess what I took the most out of in, in this paper was the information processing at an individual level. And then obviously the group, the group dynamics around that and just how complex as, as with everything involving people and, and safety, how, how complex all of that is. So Drew, the question we asked this week was, when is dropping your tools the right thing to do for safety? Well, I think according to Wake, the moment you begin to think that dropping your tools is impossible and unthinkable, that might be the moment you have to actually start wondering why you're not dropping your tools. As he sort of says with the academics, the heavier the tool is, the harder it is to drop. So the fact that it's hard may also be an indication that it's quite heavy. That's good. My short answer was just going to be when you need to run fast away from a fire. So... um... But <laughs> not when you're standing at the top of a building on a construction site with no edge protection. Probably, probably not a good thing to do in that situation. Drew, that's it for this week. We and so just 
Well, before we wrap up, next week, episode 100. So we won't spoil, not next week, next fortnight. We won't spoil what that is, but um, yeah, we've got a bit of a plan. So, But that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us for the discussion on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 